This is Mindset for Success, a We Global Studios podcast hosted by Dr. Leslie Knudsen. We explore the familiar, but not often talked about, deep-rooted emotional experiences that successful females have when setting up their businesses, and we learn how they overcame them. Hello, my name is Dr. Leslie Knutson, and I'm the host of today's show, Mindset for Success. I want to welcome our guest today, Christine Astorino. Welcome, Christine, and thank you so much for taking the time to be with me. Thank you, Leslie. It's great to be here. I appreciate being interviewed. Um, A little bit about Christine's background. She comes from a traditional background. She was trained as a landscape architect and then went on to found two small businesses. And she currently works now for a large global consulting company. Um, She uh, leads digital design customer experience, employee experience and marketing with a focus on end-to-end journey creation and data-driven transformational omni-channel experiences and advises companies to make them more digitally native and customer-centric. Christine, would you mind sharing a little bit about your professional journey, which began in landscape architecture and ended in human-centered design? Sure thing, Leslie. Um, so as you had mentioned, I have a very traditional design background. So I spent four, five years in a studio major, which was very long nights, sleeping at the studio, <laughs> doing, mm. these, doing all of mm. these great projects. And you know, I was very classically trained at that point in time. And so, you know, I went on to actually work for a family business, which was a large multidisciplinary architecture, engineering, interior design construction firm. So that's where the love for architecture, actually, that's where it stemmed. And my father's an architect as well. Mm -hmm. Uh, And after I was practicing for a while, I I actually became our head of marketing because I, I really loved marketing and business development and brand. And throughout that time, we had a commission to design a large children's hospital. And we were all sort of thinking about what are ways that we can truly make this hospital, how can it start to really affect the healing process and change the way, you know, people think about being in a hospital setting. So we did a very deep dive with patients, parents, staff, and really unlocked all of those emotional connections that truly make people connect with an environment. And we had permission from the client and we took it some additional time and we brought all of this user-centered research into the, into the design of, you know, the architecture and the interiors and the color schemes and all of those different things. And it just turned out to be an exceptional outcome. And we were comparing the before and the after before we did any of this deep user-centered research versus after, and it was just game-changing. And the hospital went on to be built and just got these amazing reviews. And um, it was that moment in time where I just understood the power of what human-centered design could actually bring. And while I was classically trained, I, it, it was pretty early days. I didn't really know what human-centered design or design thinking was. And through this experience, I was sort of self-taught and understood what, what the potential of it could be. So I went on to learn more. And I actually met a gentleman who became my mentor, who was the founder of, of IDEO, uh, David Kelly. And, and um, I actually, right before that, I had had this 
huge aha moment saying, well, if I can, if we can create this, this process for a hospital, uh, this kind of pre-designed human-centered process for a hospital, imagine what we could do with so many other types of buildings and environments. So that was the big aha moment for me where I decided to start my own company and it was called Fathom, which was design thinking and innovation. And I left my family business, although we did do quite a few collaborations together, which was very helpful. Um, and went out on my own. And that's when I met my mentor and he really helped me understand and articulate this new craft that I was trying to build. And it's, it's something that I, I am so grateful for because it just turned my career in a totally different direction and a whole new path and trajectory. And it's what I do now for a large global management consultancy. So I've been doing this type of human-centered design work for about 20 years. Um, and the connection between that and landscape architecture is truly just this love and passion for designing outcomes, whether it be environments, products, services, digital experiences that do truly connect with users emotionally mm -hmm. and also meet that functional and aesthetic need, which design is, is you know, really known for. Um, but it was just, it was a great continuation of having a very um, solid design background and learning all the craft and, and learning how to design for others into this much deeper emotional aspect of it, an innovative aspect of it, you know, because there's a lot more test and learning with design thinking and innovation than there was in traditional architecture. So it was a fail fast mentality that I started to learn about and really actually welcomed and, and liked. And so I went on to, to run one of my businesses for about 12 years or so. And um, did started with environments, doing hospitals and educational facilities and sports arenas and uh, corporate commercial spaces and a multitude of different things, which then ultimately led to service design, what happens inside of these spaces and then digital mm -hmm. experiences and how do you connect physical and digital experiences together. So it was really an evolution. Mm -hmm. And then just to keep kind of my, my hand in landscape architecture, because I worked really hard to get my degree and, and loved mm -hmm. it, uh, I did start a bit of a side hustle. Um, which was a boutique landscape design firm where I did sort of large residential projects mm -hmm. uh, and also smaller commercial like therapeutic art, healing gardens and, and things like that. So um, it, it was like having, I had two of my own children. Now having these two businesses were like two other children that I had mm -hmm. in my life For as sure. well. So part of the difference, it seems to me, from landscape architect onto the human-centered design is really having a personal connection with who you're designing for. I mean, you probably also do in landscape architect, but there's a, a, a sort of a deeper need to sort of get connected to people and be able to create areas, spaces that work well for them. Yeah, I think I think that's exactly it. I mean, I, in learning human-centered design and design thinking, I learned about a whole plethora of different types of techniques that enable you to unearth what people really think and care about. And also mm -hmm. what they can't always mm -hmm. articulate that they want in a conversation or through words. So, for example, a lot of ethnographic research started to come into play where you would observe people in their current environment and see where the mm -hmm. pain points were, the, the things that were working well. And you would generate insights out of that and themes and how can mm -hmm. I better design future environments based on that. And also a lot of in-depth one-on-one interviews using a lot of visual imagery because people tend to think an image is not words. So that really unlocked quite a few things. Um, and also just group collaborative discovery sessions where less of focus groups and more of creative sessions that would really pull insights and mm -hmm. kind of emotion out of people. And so you would take all of these different 
methodologies and bring them together and generate sort of these design principles that would help be a North Star to move forward with. And everything from everything about the design would start to adhere to those principles. Mm -hmm. Um, And so it just was a whole different process. But then also, again, test, you know, coming up with a concept, testing it with end users before it actually solidified Mm -hmm. into something final. So you could iterate as you went, whereas traditional design wasn't really, wasn't really like that. So we can never say never, but I wonder if you hadn't, uh, if you hadn't sort of bumped into this, would you eventually have gotten there with your background in landscape architecture? I honestly don't know. <laughs> it would have been a leap. I mean, it, it's a leap. Um, but what's interesting is, is, you know, as I think about it, potentially yes, because large architectural firms were now starting to do human centered mm-hmm. design, but it was probably 10, 15 years later after I started my own company. It was very novel when we did it. We actually had, had a patent for it as well. There was mm-hmm. nobody in the field of architecture going as deep as we were. Um, and so I, I think maybe eventually, but starting my, having, having the opportunity to go out and start my own company around this just was a huge catalyst in getting me to, to springboard, I, I think, over a lot of other steps that I would have had to take otherwise on a more traditional path. And so while it was scary and unknown and, you know, I had to learn a different craft, um, even though I was utilizing a good part of my brain um, mm-hmm. from design, um, you know, I think it really helped me get into a, a whole different stratosphere, you know, uh, of, of thinking and companies and opportunities and, and allowed me to just generate mm-hmm. impact at such a larger scale. You mentioned to me, if I have it correctly, that you sort of invented a course of study so you could go abroad to New Zealand. Is that, do I have that right? Well, I, I, I came up with my own study abroad opportunity because at the time there was no study abroad program in landscape architecture where I went to school, only in architecture, and I thought that was unfair. So <laughs> I proposed to... Um, my professors at the time that I thought we should have a study abroad program. And they said, well, if you want to do it, then go find us some opportunities and, and come back and we'll see mm-hmm. if we can make this happen. So I did a lot of research and I had a couple different options, found a program in New Zealand that I thought was amazing, presented it to my professors and they sort of allowed me to go and be the guinea pig and get credits mm-hmm. for it and do all mm-hmm. these things. And so um, there is now an exchange program between my university and the university and in New Zealand. So that's been going on for quite some time, which I'm really excited about. It, it also seems to me that early on, there was this press, I guess, or push from you to, to really think, do the deep dive and figure out how to do things that you wanted to do. I mean, it, it, it was novel, it was innovative. Uh, it was interesting that you sort of put yourself early on to that challenge as you put yourself up to many challenges, right? But in terms of female entrepreneurs, we kind of talk up, talk a bit about that. But it sounds to me that it's been online for a long time for you. Yeah, no, I appreciate that, Leslie. Thank you. I mean, I, I, I give a lot of credit to my father, who is an entrepreneur. Um, and so I think I always, I think I was grown I think I was raised with this mentality. If you don't see it in the world, then go make it mm-hmm. or go do it. 
mm-hmm. and not be afraid of that. So I, I think I had, um, I had a lot of encouragement, but there was also, I think I'm just generally a risk taker. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think being a mother of two children now that I've raised <laughs> that are in their early twenties <laughs> there, you know, that risk taking sort of ebbed yeah. and flowed over the years, depending, but I think I, you know, I look back when I was running two of my own businesses, raising two small kids. And I was like, wow, I can't believe I did that and flying here and flying there. And, you know, but it was just something so deep within me that was driving me that I, I couldn't imagine doing anything else. And it was just mm-hmm. my, really my life's purpose. So, And what was the drive? The drive was to, to deliver something exceptional that would just impact so many people's lives for the better. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. it just felt like there were these missed opportunities everywhere that I could go in and help make better. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And it just, it was also a personal challenge. Like it helped me grow. It helped me think, mm-hmm. um, you know, as much as I'm an artist and designer, I can be like fairly academic about things when I want to be clearly and clearly. dive pretty deep. So yeah. it just, and now working in the position I am now, I, I love it because I'm surrounded by these types of people that are like-minded thinkers and want to go as deep as I do and just push, push, push. Um, and I just find it to be really exciting. So tell me a little bit about how, um, I don't know if I want to use courage, but how, how the push allowed you, you were allowed to, to push forward because you had the confidence to do it. You, you knew you could figure out a way to do it. And if that's true, how do you, if you mentor younger women looking at trying to start their own businesses, how do you promote that kind of um, courage? I think that's a really good question. And I think when I mentor, what I try to do is just, just understand who a person is individually, because everybody has their own risk tolerance, right? So I can't necessarily superimpose mine on others. Um, you know, and you learn that even just from having children, everybody's personality is different. And so it's, it's, it really, you have to just position things in different ways at times. But I, I do think advice that I would give anybody wanting to start their own company or idea is to just truly trust yourself. Like you have instincts, you have kind of this drive within you for a reason and Mm -hmm. try not to try whatever you to do, not get discouraged and surround yourself with cheerleaders that know who you are, know how you think, want to help you succeed because there'll be ups and downs with entrepreneurship no matter what. And just knowing that, that that's going to happen, you're going to be riding waves sometimes and things, all these things are going to be going really well. And then there's going to be moments in time where you're questioning, why did I do this? And let me go work for XYZ company. And so I don't have to, you know, have all this pressure. Um, but just ride the waves and find, like I said, find a support system, keep the trust and the faith within yourself that you can do it. Things are very achievable. Like you think they aren't, but they, they are right? The world Mm -hmm. is filled with amazingly talented people that have started Mm -hmm. a gazillion things. Mm -hmm. Why can't you be one of them? Right. Mm -hmm. So, um, and I think there's a lot of resources out there, like we global, for example, like if it's, it's hard when you don't know what you don't know. So there was a lot of things as a young entrepreneur that I didn't know, right. I didn't know accounting. I didn't know how to hire and fire people. I did. There were things that I didn't know. Um, and so when you can, find people that are really good at those different areas where you're not just pick their brain, get advice, um, 
you know, get counsel because it's so easy to think that everybody knows exactly what they're doing, but a lot of people are just <laughs> doing it for the first time as well. <laughs> mm -hmm. yeah. um, you're not alone. So, um, and just have patience with yourself as well. Growing up, did you feel like you fit in with the group that you were with, uh, with in school or uh, with friends? I think always with friends and I never had issues like that. I always had a lot of friends. I was always very outgoing. I wasn't very introverted. Um, I also played quite a, quite a bit of sports. So that mm -hmm. helped. I think when it came to kind of my career, um, I think in, was it, when I was a student in landscape architecture, I was definitely an outlier because I was always looking for solutions that were a bit different and unique mm -hmm. than, than the rest mm -hmm. of my class. And I kind of pushed myself to do that. Don't know why, maybe because my father's an architect, I was trying to really do something very different and also use different parts of my brain because I loved photography. I loved creative writing. I loved all of these different things that I tried to bring into a more traditional practice of landscape architecture. Um, and so it kind of allowed me to be more, I don't know, think outside the box a bit more. And then I think when it came to having my career and starting my businesses, I, I, dedic I will admit that I dedicated so much of my time and my energy to either my businesses or my children that sometimes friendships kind of, they were harder to keep up, right? They were mm -hmm. probably third on my of list. Course. Of course, and so yes. I could do everything consistently that a lot of the other friends in my groups could do. They were always showing up at the same, you know, the same place, the same time. And I'm like, I can't do that. I need to go to this meeting or I have this going on. And, and so you just have to make your choices. Um, you know, if I could do it again, I'd probably try to balance that out a little bit more, but you mm -hmm. can only do what you can do, right? When mm -hmm. you're just burning the mm -hmm. candle at both ends. And, and you can't predict when you're needed and when you're not needed. Well, exactly. And so you, you become <laughs> gun shy to sort of say, yes, yeah. I can be there because I need that now. And then a meeting yeah. will come up and I'll be like, oh, I have to cancel. So, I mean, I think like I, I would with my teams, just be very transparent about like, hey, I really want to be with you guys. I really want to be able to hang out and do all this stuff. Just know that when I cancel, it's not intentional, sure. you know, and I don't want to hurt anybody's feelings, but this is the reality is my job's really intense. And I, mm -hmm. you know, I, I can't miss certain things, but I will prioritize time with you however I can. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Tell me a little bit about your um, really a mission in some ways to inspire the people that work for you. What, where, where does that, where, where does that come from? Do you, do you feel like you have the same sort of inspiration from your mentor that you talked about? You know, I, I, I've had, a, I've had several mentors in life and it's been really, it's been really re rewarding. I do find myself getting more and more excited as kind of the years go on um, to give back and motivate mm -hmm. my teams and get them excited and give them opportunities. So I, leading our North American design team where I'm at this past year. And a lot of, a lot of designers I've been able to just meet with and talk with one-on-one. -on -one. And it's just always, I'm a huge advocate of the practice of design and design thinking and innovation and what we have yet to do. And also just individual career paths because I've seen it happen and I've seen it work. And so, mm -hmm. you know, if, but I also think it's my responsibility now to provide opportunities for my teams, however I can, and growth opportunities and um, always having their back and just, um, you know, lifting them up and just getting them through the highs and the lows, because it's, that's what it's all about. Like you really need that, that support system um, and somebody that can 
just be your cheerleader and also provide those opportunities because it's hard to do it on your own. It's really mm -hmm. hard. Mm -hmm. um, we are almost at the end of our time today. I'm going to ask you one more question. I'm going to kind of try to sum up a little bit of the advice that I heard that you kind of put out there. But one of the things that you say and other people, uh, female entrepreneurs who have been successful say, they talk about failing fast and learning early. So how are you, what could you say to the, in, the young entrepreneur that maybe is anxious about not failing? You know, I, I just think you can, it's okay to be somewhat vulnerable. It's okay to not have all the answers all the time. And again, going back to, you don't know what you don't know. So I think having a little bit of transparency and saying, look, I, I, I want this to work. I think it's going to work, but here's where I think it might not work. And I could use some advice. Um, I think it's okay. I think what I've learned later in life, bringing people in to help you solve the problem as opposed to you feeling like you have to solve the problem mm -hmm. you're mm -hmm. entirely by yourself, it's For a sure. huge weight lifted when you do mm -hmm. that. And it's also a sign of strength, not weakness. So mm -hmm. um, I would say, you know, be, have, just be confident, have the peace of mind to bring people in. Don't feel like you've got to do it all on your own. Mm -hmm. And you got to that late in life because... I, I think as an entrepreneur, you want to feel like you can do it all on your own, right? And, and if you show any signs of weakness, then that might be like, oh, people aren't going to mm -hmm. trust you, or they're not going to mm -hmm. trust you as a leader, or they're not going to trust right. you as an entrepreneur, or, you know, and I just don't think that's, that's not realistic, right? It's not mm -hmm. human. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. I think learning later in life, to, it's okay to, to sh I don't want to say like, you know, it's like Brene Brown, like a lot of, it doesn't mean a ton of vulnerability, right? You still want to be strong and confident, but I think you can be authentic, right? About mm -hmm. what you know and what you don't know and where you need, mm -hmm. where you need help. Mm -hmm. I agree. And I think it's part of the picture to mentor to the, the, the entrepreneur, younger entrepreneur, because of course you don't, you want to fake it that you know everything to get the ink, the money that you need to start. Right. But on the other hand, you know, it's a lot of faking it if you don't feel like you're entirely there yet. Yeah. And I think it's, I think it's a fine balance. I think you can still be very persuasive about an idea and get sure. your funding and then you figure, and then you can figure some things out, but it's okay to, I think the authenticity is, needs to be there because I think people can see through it. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's the same, it's the same DNA that gets you to want to start your company. Right. 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 Also the authenticity, if, if you don't have it, then you, you sweat. A lot more because you don't have it and you're trying to pretend you have it exactly yeah. exactly yeah, of course christine thank you so much for coming on today i really appreciate it if our listeners would like to learn more about you how can they find you um i'm on linkedin that's probably the best way okay great shoot me a message and i'm happy to chat more okay great thank you so much have a thank you so much leslie i appreciate it thanks to all the listeners take care bye-bye this podcast is brought to you by We Global Studios, the first startup innovation studio and digital DIY startup platform for women entrepreneurs around the world. For more information on our guests, this podcast, and many other female founder programs, please visit weglobalstudios.com. 
I'm your host, Dr. Leslie Knutson. Please drop me a line at mindsetforsuccess at weglobalstudios.com. See you next week.